Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. You know, it's really funny. This building where we do our show, full of TV monitors because it's also where public television is. And so I just walked, I walked past a TV monitor just now. Uh, where I could see Henry Louis Gates talking to, I think, Mia Farrow, you know, in that program about finding your ancestors, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, those shows only can go back so far. We have other ancestors, other ancestors who were people, but not Homo sapiens. Chief among them are the Neanderthals. There actually are a, were a lot of other kinds of people who are not Homo sapiens. But for some reason or other, we come back again and again to the Neanderthals. And this is sort of part two for us. About 10 years ago, we did a Neanderthal show, but a lot has happened since then, which is amazing because they haven't been around for 40,000 years. It's not like they could take up cooking or something. All right, well, you know, ice, like the Ice Age, maybe? And maybe Neanderthals were the original vanilla ice, when you, if you think about it. Although, in fact, this whole Ice Age thing is one of the many things we may wind up debunking on today's show, uh, which, you know, everything you know about Neanderthals stands a very good chance of being wrong. And the the knowledge is changing all the time, which is one of the reasons we are doing our second show in our 12-year history about Neanderthals. Now, the other reason we're doing a, a second show about the Neanderthals is because of their importance in my life. So, you know, about 10 years ago or so, I joined 23andMe, where they do that kind of research. And it turns out that and genetically, I'm like really boring. I was really hoping that there would be something kind of exciting, you know, that I would have some kind of African DNA or something. I don't anything, you know, but I'm just this incredibly insipid, boring guy, except I have quite a bit of Neanderthal DNA. So uh, so I played that up as much as possible, started going to the family reunions. And it turns out, actually, that our, our family used to refer to the neighbors, uh, our Neanderthal family used to refer to the neighbors as the slow magnans, which is kind of racist. But um, Or it may refer, as you'll find out on today's show, to their foot speed. Um, in any case, there are a lot of people here who can talk much more knowledgeably. Oh, one more thing I have to tell you. that as a young person, I was very in- interested, very influenced by a novel called The Devil is Dead, a very obscure novel by a very obscure speculative fiction novelist named R.A. Lafferty. And the whole premise of it was that the Neanderthals had not died out and they were living kind of alongside us. But the, the opening quote was from a different uh, speculative fiction writer, Isaac Asimov, and it said on that quote page, in fact... Give a Neanderthal man a shave and a haircut, dress him in well-fitted clothes, 
and he could probably walk down New York's Fifth Avenue without getting much notice. That also may be disputed by our terrific guest here today. Back with us, we're so excited because we loved her so much on the show about handshaking. Ella Al-Tramahi is back with us, National Geographic Explorer, TV presenter, paleoanthropologist, evolutionary biologist, and stand-up comic. All right, beat that resume. Uh, she also presented a BBC PBS series, Neanderthals, Meet Your Ancestors, uh, her latest book. Uh, is the aforementioned The Handshake, A Gripping History. Also with us, Bruce Hardy, a professor of anthropology at Kenyon College. Uh, Anna Goldfield is the host uh, of the podcast The Dirt uh, and an archaeologist. Later in the show, you will meet a writer of speculative fiction who is writing uh, about Neanderthals. But um, I think maybe to begin, Ella, I'm going to ask you to kind of get us going here. I mean, there are, uh, you know, many, many, more than 20 known species of people who were not homo sapiens, right? People who predate uh, our current situation, uh, people whose, whose specific species died out. But we come back to Neanderthal over and over again, uh, as opposed to any of the other ones. What are some of the reasons why Neanderthals come first? So I think uh, Neanderthals come first. First of all, actually, I have to say, uh, congratulations on loving the Neanderthals because <laughs> uh, it's, it's about time they got some love. Uh, but I, I would say I think the reason why they're getting um, more attention is partly historical. Um, so Neanderthals were primarily found in Europe. Um, and so, you know, they're on the doorstep of most uh, paleoanthropologists and archaeologists. So it kind of made sense just in terms of an accident of history. Um, but I think the other reason is just that they're our closest relative. And therefore, we've just got so many more fossils for them. Uh, we just know so much more about them. So it's it's easier to become really obsessed with something that you know so much more about. Right. When you say our closest relative, are you talking uh, what DNA overlap? Uh, so uh, we share a common ancestor, um, uh, and then we kind of we split from this common ancestor, and then we did this really funky thing. We we started mating with each other anyway, even though we'd split into two kind of separate populations, stroke species. Um, so we're related to them in, in multiple ways. Um, but you're right, and I think for a lot of people, they don't quite realise that this is the only time in human history that only one species of human has walked this earth. So before this, there were multiple species of humans. And amazingly, it wasn't just the Neanderthals, you know, there was different species in different geographical regions. Um, and yet, for some reason, we're the only ones left. Um, and, and kind of all of them, including the very famous Neanderthal is no longer with us. Yeah. So and it should be noted that the name itself comes from I almost pulled a clip of one of his big hits, uh, but it comes from uh, this area where the original fossils were found. Uh, but it's named after this Joachim Neander, who, first of all, his name actually kind of means new man. Uh, and uh, he used to walk around this whole area making up hymn, hymns. And, and <laughs> <laughs> and and then years later, of course, the Neanderthals got involved. Uh, Neanderthals uh, were discovered there and, and already, I guess. Yeah, because it was a valley. It was basically a valley in Germany. Yeah. Even though technically the very, very first skulls were actually found in other places, but um, they just weren't identified at the time. But the first one that was properly identified was, was German. Um, and obviously the German jokes come in hard and heavy. <laughs> 
Uh, he, but he actually did write. He, he, uh, his big hit was, uh, let's see, was uh, Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, which I could actually sing a few bars of, but I don't think I will. Right now. Um, <laughs> this is not the Neanderthal show people were expecting. No, no, <laughs> not at all. Let's go for it. Um, so, so, Bruce, I think another reason to do uh, a second Neanderthal episode for us is this is kind of a moving target, right? This is a way in which even though there hasn't been a full-blooded Neanderthal around for 40,000 years, the knowledge is changing a lot. So in the last decade or so, uh, how, how has, has how has that pile of knowledge shifted? I'm asking you, Bruce Hardy. Well, it's it's gotten larger, uh, for, for one thing. It's a very large pile of, of knowledge and it keeps changing every day, pretty much. You can check uh, publications and new stuff is out all the time. But it's really shifted largely in two ways. One, we keep finding more things about Neanderthals. We keep finding that they're doing more stuff that they're not supposed to be doing because they're supposed to be stupid and and not technologically advanced. And, and we keep finding new things that so well, yeah, well, maybe we need to move that bar a little bit. And the other thing that's really changed, of course, is the, the big revolution in ancient DNA, where the technology has evolved such that we can now get DNA out of so many of these these ancient bones and as as ella mentioned it shows that what is happening is that neanderthals are interbreeding with pretty much everybody in the late pleistocene and there's a lot of gene flow going back and forth and it's really kind of even further blurring those lines between neanderthal and human all right so uh just to that point about Neanderthals, Neanderthals are stupid. It's still around, and not to pick on Joe Biden, but uh, here he is in March 2021 uh, talking about the people who won't wear masks in Texas and Mississippi. And the last thing, the last thing we need is the Neanderthal thinking that in the meantime, everything's fine. Take off your mask. Forget it. It still matters. Um, actually, <laughs> actually, Ella, watching your special, I don't, maybe Neanderthals would have been okay wearing masks. Uh, you actually <laughs> looked at, uh, and, and speaking of technology, tried to even recreate uh, with the help of actor Andy Serkis, who played uh, Gollum in Lord of the Rings. But you were trying to try to recreate, you know, what it was like for them to run. Or you weren't doing this. You were watching other people do this. Uh, yeah. with, and, and so what did we learn about them? I mean, you know, Bruce said it, it all keeps changing. One of the things we know is that they're more Usain Bolt-like than they are, you know, I'm trying to think of Alberto Salazar, a famous distance runner, right? They were sprinters. Yeah, they were definitely sprinters, whereas we're considered, as homo sapiens, we're definitely considered to be better at long, longer distances. I think they were just really built for power, though. You know, they were, they were power hunters. Um, but also, you know, Bruce has kind of hit the nail on the head, which is that um, I think about 10 years ago, I, in some ways, I felt so much more confident. I don't know about you, Bruce, but I felt so much more confident talking about Neanderthals. Whereas now, now I'm like, well, this is what we currently think. Give us another three weeks. <laughs> And I'm sure somebody will find something that um, that overthrows stuff. But yeah, I mean, you know, there's a lot of evidence that they were um, incredibly muscular compared to ourselves. Um, they were stocky. They were shorter. You mentioned uh, probably what is the most famous um, Neanderthal joke of all time, which is, yeah, that um, yeah, you kind of alluded to it, which is that uh, one famous Neanderthal specialist said, uh, you know what, Neanderthals are just like us. Um, like if you put one in a bowler hat and you put him on the New York subway, nobody would notice. And then another paleoanthropologist said, yeah, but that says more about the New York subway than it does about Neanderthals. Um, and I think um, one of the things for so many people is that you know, this idea that Neanderthals are not just brutish, but they look brutish. They look 
um, very unhuman. Um, and so we actually did this experiment for, for that PBS um, show where we actually got a Neanderthal um, the most scientifically accurate Neanderthal we felt um, that had ever been put to screen. We, we put him on the on the London Underground and we asked the audience if they would switch carriages. And I think people were really shocked because once we'd kind of cleaned him up a bit, it, I think the audience were really split. Some of them were like, mm, we might stare, stare at him a bit. As others were like, oh, you know, nothing weird for London. You know, it's it really interesting to kind of to see how all these stereotypes that we have of the Neanderthal as being this you know, bizarre creature, actually a kind of slowly but surely um, being overturned. Right. I mean, I regard all of those kinds of jokes as slurs. As somebody with a lot of Neanderthal DNA, I'm uh, I'm very thin-skinned. I'm easily offended but by stuff like that. you know, there are people that say this. People, people say, oh, how, how dare you be so rude about the Neanderthals? You know, they were just a different kind of people, et cetera, et cetera. And, and my argument is, look, okay, I mean, let's also be realistic. Um, I wouldn't want to date, for example, a Victorian because, you know, they'd be a bit old fashioned. And so forgive me for not wanting to hang out too long for too long with somebody who was 50,000 years old. So I think also, you know, sometimes we're a bit overly, um, uh, I don't know, generous as well. Like, you know, they're clearly not knuckle dragging ape men, uh, but also they did come from a very different time. Yes. Well, um, First of all, somebody in your family dated Neanderthals. We know that uh, because we've all got the DNA. Anyway, let's... Uh, Grandmother, uh, bless grand- you. <laughs> there we go. Um, I'm sure it's one of those things they don't talk about at the family uh, gatherings. Yeah. Uh, all right. So, um, Anna, I want to get you into this conversation. One of the things that I'm more aware of, having done uh, the reading for this show, is that you know, we can now sort of say that we know a little bit about what Neanderthals ate or how they buried their dead or what kinds of stuff they might have worn even ornamentally on their bodies. I mean, what can you sort of say to us generally about what we know about kind of the Neanderthal way of life 40,000 plus years ago? I think when you talk about the way of life of any population that's no longer with us, you have to be very careful to not think of it as a big sort of monolith, a big, everybody was doing one thing because Neanderthals were around um, for more than 200,000 years and they occupied areas all the way from Western Europe, all the way East to sort of what we might think of as, as Northern and Western Asia. And so they would have been present in lots and lots of different environments. And so as far as food goes, that means that they would have different populations would have had access to different resources. So if we go back to previous conceptions of Neanderthals as big hairy dum-dums, um, a, a thing that went along with that was that they were thought to have been primarily big game hunters who were pretty much carnivores, hunted animals and ate them. But what we know now is thanks to a a lot of new technology, a lot of new approaches, a lot of new ways to look at the fossil record and ask questions about diet. We know that Neanderthal diet, just like anybody else's diet, depends on where they are and what they have available to them. So you have, for example, Neanderthals who are living in coastal Portugal, or at least what is today Portugal, um, enjoying a lot of shellfish and seafood that they would take from Um, you know, they would scavenge and and forage along the coastline and then they would bring back to the cave because there's all this material in the the cave that shows that they 
kind of left their shells and crab claws there. And we have evidence from looking very, very closely at Neanderthal teeth and even being able to extract microbe DNA from Neanderthal teeth that tells us that they were eating starches. And not only that, they were cooking their starches. To um, Some populations were. So there's this huge variety of behavior. And so it really, really depends on where and when you look. Because if you're a Neanderthal up in the northern reaches of, of Europe and it is winter, your diet's probably going to be, yeah, pretty much the animals you're hunting because that's what there is. It's cold and terrible and there's only animals. But elsewhere, there is a, a much wider selection. So it's sort of like the previous conception of Neanderthal diet would be if, as if someone walked into a grocery store and said, well, I only see three available foods, but actually it's this whole, this whole smorgasbord on the landscape. Right. It, it does seem, based on just the, once again, the cursory reading that I've done, that, you know, in some instances, they probably kind of ate a couple of things. I mean, you know, living in a cave, a cave in Gibraltar, maybe you have a little bit of roasted ibex, but maybe you have some mussels that you got, too, and maybe some grains and or plants that you gathered. It wouldn't necessarily be they'd just be all kind of hunched down over an ibex haunch gnawing away at it. Yeah. I mean, if it's there and you know you can eat it, why not? And and so Bruce, that also brings up the question of what kind of tools they had, what kind of what kind of stuff uh, Neanderthals had, uh, and that's playing uh, to your strength right right now. What can you tell us? Once again, you know Anna is a hundred percent right that they're living valley to valley to valley. They have different cultures depending on where they are. And some people are up there living kind of ice age life, and some people are down in jolly old Portugal. You know, getting something, getting a little more sun. But what do we know about their stuff? Well, we don't. We are missing a lot of the stuff. Um, we're missing most of the stuff. 99, 90 to 95% of what they would have been doing is made of perishable materials, and we just really almost never find it. So we got a lot of stone tools. We know they're doing things with stone tools, but they're not, some, some of which is butchering animals, but they're also doing things working wood, and we get occasional glimpses into that, like this, this um, two-meter-long spears from Schoeningen or the digging sticks from Pogetti Vecchi. Um, but mostly we, we are missing a lot of it. Now, you're obviously pointing toward uh, something that I love to talk about, which is string. Um, so a couple of years ago, I published a, an article from a site in southern France, Abri de Maras, which is about 50,000 years old, or the levels we're working in. And on the inferior surface of a stone flake, I found a very small fragment of string, of uh, a three-ply cord made from the inner bark of a conifer. And that tells you a whole lot about Neanderthals. So the idea of, we think of a string, we take string for granted. But if you look around you, um, you're, you're wearing string. Uh, the, uh, there's construction going on across the street from me where, where there's twisted cables, all this stuff. We, we, we probably wouldn't be here without twisted fibers. Um, but it tells you a lot of things. A twisted fiber is a really amazing technology. And it's something that you can't just make. In other words, you, you've got multiple steps that are along the way, but all those steps are necessary to get to your end product. So I can't, I've got to find the, the tree. I've got to get the fiber out of the tree. I've got to break that into, into sets and, 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 um, and pairs, which tells you the Neanderthals know something about numerosity. And then I've got to twist all that stuff together into a cord, which is what we found. 
And really, when you think about it, if you think about the mental capabilities that are necessary in order to do all those steps, it's very similar to the way we produce language. So if you think about language, and we're talking right now, I can't make a sentence without words. And I can't make words without individual sounds that convey meaning. I can't jump to the end. I've got to have all those spaces along the way. And so that means that the Neanderthal mind is, by, by making string, is doing that same kind of thing. Mm. Uh, now, what the string represents beyond that, what it was used for, any number of, of things are possible. It's found on a stone tool. It could be part of a binding um, to, to half that onto a handle, but it also could be part of a net or it could be part of a bag. And the possibilities that come up once you've got proof of fiber technology are really just uh, kind of endless. You know, Anna, um, there's a way in which we just are constantly doing these kind of invidious comparisons. I mean, there, there's going to be some reason why this notion of Neanderthals as stupider than us persists. It turns <laughs> into a linguistic trope, you know, and, and, and I'm wondering about that. I'm wondering about whether it's almost a kind of anxiety, right? We're still here. Nobody else, none of the other people are still here. So maybe is it we just need to explain to ourselves existentially what we're doing here with all the other people kind of species are dead? I think that's a big part of it. I think that we just sort of as a default of how our brains work, we're just sort of we are the protagonists of our own story all the time. Um I think another large part of it has to do with the origins of how Neanderthals were first categorized and how they were first kind of placed into the hierarchy of, of species. Because um, in 1864, a guy named William King published the first Neanderthal specimen as an extinct human species. But his description, since it was 1856, his description relied very much on the racial characteristics of the day, because anthropology as a discipline at that point was still very much about putting all living things into very nice, neat categories, and that included different groups of humans. And so Neanderthals got kind of lumped in with, because of the shape of the skull, because it looks very different from uh, the skull of a homo sapiens, um, it got lumped in, unfortunately, by William King, um, and he he used the phrase that the skull was proof of moral darkness and stupidity, which, you know, using the kind of phrenology of the time, the idea that the shape of the skull uh, is directly informed by or directly denotes moral characteristics. So there's there's that. And so I think from that point, we've had these unfortunately, like the bar for Neanderthal intelligence has been in the floor. It's a very, very low bar until we start to learn more and more about them. We've started to understand more about their lives and the possibilities of their cognition and their social groups and how very, very similar they are to us. And I think that that does give us as homo sapiens some kind of existential angst because if Neanderthals are humans, too, then we're not the only humans, but are we still special? Are we still important? Are we still, we have kind of a, an inflated sense of our own superiority because we've had the past 40,000 years alone on this planet to just kind of think about ourselves and sort of forget a time when there were multiple different flavors of human 
bopping around the earth. But I, I think that that those two things are a part of it, sort of the roots of understanding and characterizing Neanderthals kind of set that very low bar. But then I think it it also feeds into our own <laughs> insecurities as no longer the only no longer the only human on the family tree. So um Ella you know, you've sort of lived with this whole question over a longer, a long period of time, uh, making the special. You're thinking evolved. You said earlier in the show you're less comfortable these days saying something dispositive uh, about Neanderthals. How, how have you processed this question, this kind of need we have? It's almost as though at the back of our minds we think maybe we just got lucky, but it's it just sort of that's sort of nerve wracking at an existential level to think, oh, are we here because we're just we're a little luckier than these other people? I mean, they wore feathers and, you know, buried their dead. And I mean, they weren't that different, right? Well, I, I just love what Anna said about um, that we are the protagonist of our own story, you know, and I, I think that's part of it for sure. And, and you know, the historical context is also really, really important. So, um, you know, some of the early Neanderthals were actually um, also um, very arthritic and uh, the reconstruction of them was quite, um, let's say if somebody currently was to do the reconstruction, they would identify this person was arthritic. And instead um, that was taken as an example of them being very hunched back and kind of very knuckle dragging and what have you. Now, as a media person, I have to say um, the the press really hasn't helped. (laughs) Um, So part of the reason why it's really in our head this idea of the neanderthal as this brute is because of hollywood you know hollywood was really effective in some early films but it's kind of continued all the way throughout um showing neanderthals as kind of these brutes um and and uh, i have to say you know i straddle both worlds um it is really hard to overturn a message once it's already out there i think with uh, with our um neanderthal show i kept saying to people i want to do a pr job on the neanderthals um and it's really hard you know um <laughs> but i think there's something else which i know some some neanderthal specialists will disagree with but like you know the overwhelming kind of feels something similar which is that um it's also just that when we look at the fossil record while there's you know i would argue 100 percent there is you know there are many 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 examples of incredible culture out there with the neanderthals of incredible technology um etc etc we're not overwhelmed by it like we are with uh the human fossil record um and you know, so if you look at the 200,000 year mark, it's it's really hard to discuss dates because dates keep shifting. But, you know, what we were producing culturally, it it was kind of astonishing um, when you look at the fossil record compared to what the Neanderthals were producing in terms of um, scale of it and the sheer, sheer amount of it. Um, but that's also slightly unfair because it might be that Neanderthals had incredible culture, but it displayed itself in ways that just don't preserve in the fossil record. So, for example, if you think maybe the Neanderthals were really incredible at body paint and maybe they had, you know, an incredible body painting culture that was just, you know, layered and nuanced and just incredible. We're never going to know that, you know, it's, it's never going to be preserved in the fossil record. So it's also a really difficult one. So it's it's kind of you speak with with strong opinions, but you can't really speak with certainty, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I, I thought the Hollywood thing where 
you know, we Neanderthals were so dumb we didn't even get that Daryl Hannah was attractive. Uh, I thought that was very unfair. Um, but the arthritis thing, I can tell you, it runs in the family. I, I'm living with it right now. Uh, all right. We are going to say farewell to Anna Goldfield, the host of the podcast The Dirt and an archaeologist. Uh, thank you, Anna. Emily Madsen says hello. Uh, <laughs> and uh, we're going to take a break. Ella and Bruce are going to come back. We're going to tell you more. Ella's even going to tell you sort of what they might have sounded like. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. How can it be offensive if it's true? Okay, first of all, I'm not 100% in love with your tone right now. Tone aside, historically, you guys have struggled to adapt. Yeah, right. Walking upright, discovering fire, inventing the wheel, laying the foundation for all mankind. You're right. Good point. Sorry we couldn't get that to you sooner. Connie, your reaction? Sounds like someone woke up on the wrong side of the rock. Geico. All right, we just did a free Geico commercial, but uh, you you may be aware of the fact that they did this kind of. I mean, maybe some of the kind of Neanderthal revisionism that uh, that Ella is looking for. So with us right now, uh, Ella Al Shamahi, uh, a National Geographic explorer, TV presenter, paleoanthropologist. I could I could go on. She also uh, presented the PB, BBC PBS series Neanderthals. Meet your ancestors. Uh, we had her on for her book about a hand, the handshake. Uh, Bruce Hardy is with us, a professor of anthropology at Kenyon College. Before we plunge into uh, Homo sapiens, Neanderthal, uh, intermarriage. Uh, Bruce, maybe help us clean up a question we got on Twitter uh, from the previous segment. Uh, Mark wants to know, is there evidence that Neanderthals used fire and cooked their food? Fire is really hard to find in the fossil, in the archaeological record. Um, we know that they are definitely using fire. Um, we find lots of, of hearths. We find lots of burned bone. Uh, we also find sites that do not have fire and do not have burned bone, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're also not using fire at that point, because if you think about it, when you go find a, a site in a lot of the sites, in, at least in, in certain parts of Europe or rock shelter sites, so they're up against the base of a cliff, and you only excavate a certain portion of the site, and what if the fire was just two feet over that way where you didn't excavate? And so we don't necessarily know. We also do have, and it was mentioned earlier, but um, one of the 
most direct pieces of evidence comes from examining dental calculus. So if you uh, if we didn't go to the dentist um, and get uh, plaque scraped off our teeth, it would eventually mineralize and become what we call calculus. And that can preserve a record of things that were inhaled into the mouth or eaten. And in a few cases at this point, we've got um, starch grains that show cracking uh, and evidence of heating. So they're, they're cooked starches. Um, so they are definitely making fire and cooking. We don't know if that's all the time, uh, but we know they're certainly capable of it. All right. So Ella, by the way, Ella is going to be back with us in about six months. We're going to do a show about uh, the Philistines because it seems to me that they're another group, you know, that that become a trope. They can become synonymous with a certain lack of enlightenment. Anyway, uh, Ella, yeah, they're making food. They're also making whoopee uh, and occasionally they're making whoopee with Homo sapiens. So I'm wondering how much we actually know about this. Obviously, love letters have not survived. uh, But the archaeologist Clive Finlayson, who you interviewed on your show, says that, you know, probably once again, as Anna was saying in the previous segment, it was probably a polyculture, right? It may have varied a lot from valley to valley. There could be valleys where they were just get, getting busy all the time and then other places where they didn't like each other or thought they the other one smelled bad or something. Yeah. yeah, we just, it's it's such a difficult one because we don't know. Actually, there was, um, so there was uh, times when we asked, uh, I think I asked most people um, on that show a few questions, one of them being, you know, what do you think that first interaction was like? What do you think it was, you know, you meet the species, you even, do you even know that you're different species, you know? Um, uh, and it was interesting because a few people were like, look, you, you guys keep talking about it being as some big love story. Um, you know, maybe maybe it wasn't. It might have been violent. We just don't know. Um, and it's so difficult because you just think, well, um, people are so tribal. Our, our species is so tribal. You know, it's 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 so difficult to to kind of mate with somebody who's perceived to be so very different. And yet at the same time, some people also exoticize the other. And so who knows what was going on? But what we do know is the mating happened. We don't know in what context it happened. Um, but there is one clue, which is that um, the offspring in many of those cases survived. So if they were, if you regarded each other as completely shockingly different and, you know, there was lots and lots and lots of stigma associated with mating with each other, um, there was quite a few that were still, there was quite a few, you know, products of those interactions that were still surviving. So there were quite a lot of hybrid babies who were still surviving. Um, and, you know, babies aren't going to survive on their own. So that means the community or at least a few people were OK with that child and therefore willing to raise it. So we know that at least in some of these interactions, they they I don't know, they, they couldn't have been completely abhorrent. Um, but it's a really difficult one. It's, it's kind of in some ways, it's really fun speculating on, on how that would have looked. Um, but it's also, you know, quite difficult to kind of say anything with any degree of certainty. So there's a way, well, it could have been hybrid vigor, vigor too. You know, we could have just, uh, it's like, you know, mongrel dogs do better. Um, so, um, Bruce, 
now they're sort of you know the you know I think we've pretty well documented the fact that there's this bizarre form of prejudice for one of a better term uh, or stigmatization or or downgrading of the Neanderthal. But there's also an exalting of the Neanderthal. And these days, with 23andMe, uh, other people are being like me. You know, they get the report, they find out they've got the DNA, and suddenly. We're kind of waving the Neanderthal pride flag, uh, and and I know you've had that experience in your own family. Although I guess you came out on the with the short end of the pointed stick, so to speak. Yeah. So so um, my department here, the entire department, did uh, twenty three and Me several years back, just to to kind of see what we we got here. And I never really, I was always afraid to do it because, like you, I wanted to have a lot of Neanderthal DNA, <laughs> and I was really worried that I wasn't going to have very much. But when we finally did it, I didn't have a, a whole lot. Um, and the, the funny thing was that, that my wife who's also a professor of anthropology here at, at Kenyon, um, had more than I did. And so I was like, oh, come on, really? You're got, you've got more Neanderthal DNA than me until I suddenly realized that obviously I was going to be attracted to somebody who had more <laughs> Neanderthal DNA than me because I'm, I love Neanderthals. And therefore, you know, we're just trying to breed back to the original. I haven't had my 10 kids <laughs> tested yet, but you know, they're probably going to be higher. So we can work our way, and maybe we'll get a Neanderthal one day. So, um, uh, the, love the mental hopscotch involved there to try <laughs> to get to the point where you were okay with that, Bruce. Yes, uh, it took a little, it took a little time. A little rationalization going on there, but nothing wrong with that. So, you know, the, I'm assuming the stuff that 23andMe says, Bruce, about traits is kind of a load of rhinoceros crap. I mean, having difficulty discarding rarely used possessions, experiencing more itchy mosquito bites. I mean, how can how can 23andMe have any idea whether that's connected to, to Neanderthal DNA? Well, to be honest, I don't know that, that we know what 23andMe is really doing. Um, they're, they're, uh, the sites they're looking at, the Neanderthal sites and things like this, they don't share them with us. They don't tell them what, what they are. And one of the things that I noticed over time, because if I go back and log on again to my 23andMe <laughs> account, I've actually, the amount of my Neanderthal DNA has changed. Um, in fact, I'm becoming less Neanderthal as time goes by. <laughs> as the database gets bigger, I get farther and further down on the ladder. So um, I wouldn't put too much stock in it, although I'm not telling you to ignore your Neanderthal um heritage there. No. So, Ella, one thing that you found out, there's a terrific part in uh, your your documentary series where you, I think he's a Duke. I can't remember. Maybe that's not right. But you visit a guy who's really looking at sample, samples of genetic code and, and talking about the fact that there may be some real medical implications to having more uh, more Neanderthal DNA. I'm not doing a very good job of fleshing this yeah, out. Yeah, no, I know no. You... But can I just can I just say one thing yeah. about 23andMe and all kind of all of these kind of home genome tests and stuff? Mm -hmm. um, they are funky. They are cool. They are very interesting. But it's really important for the public to understand that it's only sampling bits of your DNA. It's not doing your. It's not doing all your chromosomes. It's not. It's not like a full genome analysis. So it's the equivalent of somebody coming up to me telling me my whole family history based on just my surname Al-Shamahi, as opposed to telling me my, my history based on my mother's surname as well, and her mother's surname, and my dad's mom's surname. Do you see what I mean? It's yes. kind of, it's only giving you a small sample, and I think that's the big problem people are in, that they kind of assume all their stuff based on kind of really just a few snippets of evidence. 
Um, and and the more we the more we get closer to actually being able to sequence everybody's kind of genomes for for kind of you know a small Christmas fee um, price, you know Christmas present price, the, the better we'll, we'll get at kind of having a better picture of things. Um, but as for medical staff, that's interesting, um, and I, I think. There are, there are so many things going on there, but one of the, the basic underlying ideas behind this is we probably did really well as a species because we interbred with species that were already in um, areas and had already evolved for those areas and for those environments. And therefore, you know, we were able to pick up immunities from all these people. Um, and, and so that's kind of part of the idea that we are we are more robust as a result of, of the Neanderthal DNA in us. Um, but it's also possible that some of that DNA is also bad for us right now because obviously the times are different. You know, this is a very different time to be alive than, than you know, 50 or 200,000 years ago. Um, but some of the um, some of the studies that are being done are, are fantastic. So they kind of, they look at associations um, between different diseases and Neanderthal DNA. Um, and so, for example, and you kind of alluded to this, it's, uh, this is some of where 23andMe and some of these other organizations get their ideas from. So it's like, well, depression. Okay, well, if you have, if you, if you, you know, say that you're depressed and you also have some Neanderthal DNA in you, that stuff kind of gets counted in, in large numbers when, you, when you're taking samples. Um, and so sometimes people say, ah, there's an association between the two. But the thing is, you know, you've got to be careful with that as well, because just because something correlates doesn't mean it's there's any, you know, it's it's the reason for that correlation. I think um, I remember in one of my first ever stats classes, um, uh, the professor said um, there was this really interesting study and they showed that um, um, basically houses with lots of storks have more children therefore storks were the ones <laughs> providing the children to these families and of course what it actually is is just you know people with lots of children tend to have bigger houses and therefore more storks are able to live in those houses and so you've just got to be really careful because obviously one of the things that 23andme um, also will say is, you know, based on your DNA, you're more likely to be a cat person or a dog person. <laughs> I think that is a leap. Yes. That's <laughs> what I'm saying. All right. So um, I've got to speed things along here. I do want to just play this clip uh, from uh, from Ella's uh, uh, PBS thing. Uh, we're not going to have time to talk about it too much, but because I had read somewhere else that Neanderthals talked like Julia Child, which didn't really seem very plausible, you know? We're all going to make some lovely Ibex today. It's going to be delicious. But in fact, uh, you met with an anatomist named uh, Sandra Martelli and listened to simulated Neanderthal vocalizations, mm -hmm. kind of computer generated. Uh, here's just really quickly what that sounded like. So here's your human. Uh, e Neanderthal. Uh, e human again. Uh, e Neanderthal. Uh, e Neanderthal. Uh, e Ice, ice, baby. It's a it's a very short trip from there to vanilla ice, I think. Uh, but yeah, not too much difference. I mean, you know, the the ahs and the uhs are kind of a little bit different, but, but slightly higher pitched. Yeah, slightly it, higher right? pitched. Yeah, slightly higher pitched. So yeah. it is like Julia Child. All right, so we're going to have to take a quick break here. Uh, we're going to come back. We're going to talk about talk to a writer of speculative fiction uh, because you know they kind of see around corners. I make this point on the show all the time. Thanks to Bruce Hardy, professor of anthropology at Kenyon College. Ella will be back with us. Much ice now, though we don't interbreed, we do the best that we can. 
takes the right kind of woman to love a Neanderthal man. Well, she's gotta be strong with a solid forearm. And she's gotta be nice, but just breathe. <laughs> All right, we are back. I should mention that the little bit, bit of the song that you heard, you might have recognized that voice. That's Kylan Wolf. That's a song that she and I wrote, a country Neanderthal song uh, for our, our part one, our original Neanderthal show 10 or so years ago. So uh, today I want to thank, uh, obviously, uh, Kat Pastor. She's our senior. She's our technical producer, uh, and she's the one making all this stuff happen. Lily Tyson, our senior producer, uh, is the producer of this particular episode and has done her usual bang-up job. So um, we're going to sort of shift gears a little bit here uh, and uh, our guide all the way through the Virgil leading us through the Neanderthal underworld uh, is still uh, Ella Al-Shamahi, uh, National Geographic explorer and TV presenter and stand-up comic and you name it uh, and was also on our Handshake show. Joining us now also is Claire Cameron, uh, author of The Last Neanderthal uh, among other books, uh, but that's the book that's really important to us right now. So Claire, first of all, welcome to our conversation and just tell us a little bit uh, of about your book and, and maybe the inspiration or genesis for it. Thanks, Colin. Um, it is, yes, The Last Neanderthal. It's a story that focuses on two women, one who is a Neanderthal and living 40,000 years ago. And then the other protagonist is an archaeologist named Rose who lives in the current day. Um, and their stories are sort of intertwined. Um, but the focus is on the Neanderthal story, um, and it's her survival story, essentially. So, and it goes up to the moment when she first encounters a Homo sapiens. Um, and that was really the inspiration that I, um, I grew up in Canada, and we had a like quite colonial view on history, I guess. And um, I grew up with this idea that the that we had won over the Neanderthals, and you know we're the victorious, and that's why we got to live and they were extinct. Um, so this writing this book was my way of sort of ref, using the new research as inspiration um, to write what I feel is a more true story about um, our possible coexistence and similarities and um, to view the Neanderthal as very much human like us. So I think when writers uh, with great imaginations like yours, when they do this, that's one of the places their mind goes, that there's been this incredible kind of downgrading uh, of the Neanderthal to, you know, to savagery. Uh, and uh, Asimov and, and Robert Silverberg both wrote this book that started out as a story called The Ugly Little Boy, I think, and then turned into The Child of Time. But yeah. the Neanderthals are complex and sophisticated. John Darton, Darton wrote Neanderthal. I actually read that one. I'm pretty sure when it came out in the 90s. I think they're psychic in that one. Robert Sawyer, Neanderthal yeah. Paradox. Uh, he's got um, uh, the idea. It's a multiverse thing. There's there's other versions of Earth where the Neanderthals are are running stuff. Uh, but Claire, I assume that's kind of part of this is that, you, you know, to, if you're going to imagine, you want to imagine a different set of possibilities than the latent tropes that we live with uh, in our everyday lives. Yeah, I um, I sort of went into took two things I think from my life because um, once I I read the research and sort of started accepting their humanness, then I thought well maybe 
I do have some insight. And on one side, I'm a, a mountain guide, a mountaineer, and I've spent a lot of time outdoors. And I think that's, you know, if I compare myself in my office right now to the Neanderthal, I'm quite different. But when I go outside for extended periods, um, I notice my senses pick up. Um, I often start talking less. I start listening more. And my eyesight becomes acute. And I, I sort of took those things as cues to imagine, to sort of breathe life into Neanderthals. The other thing that I thought a point of similarity I could start from is, um, you know, biologically speaking, we were different, but not that different. And I thought the experience of childbirth, um, if I met a Neanderthal woman, I'm sure we could compare <laughs> stories and that sort of thing. And so the two women in my novel are connected by their experience of childbirth mm. and becoming mothers. So Ella, um, there's so many questions I want to ask you in this connection, but, but you know, uh, maybe the main one is, it, it, let's say that you did run into a Neanderthal on the tube or, or somewhere, uh, and, uh, and I don't know, Wittgenstein said that if a lion could speak, we would not understand it. But let's say that you and the Neanderthal could make yourself understood to one another. What would you want to know? Um, you know, what's still sort of plaguing your imagination? I mean, I, the big question, obviously, is what happened to you guys? Uh, yeah. Is that your is that your main question for them? Yeah, I mean, but, but it's so difficult because, you know, um, would they know, you know, because sometimes, <laughs> it, you know, extinction's really slow and you have no idea. And maybe they didn't even know they were going extinct. You know, maybe as far as they're concerned, they were concerned, there was just fewer of them and they just decided to uh, you know, team up with the Homo sapiens in the village next door, you know, or the valley next door. Um, but I'd also kind of, honestly, I'd want to get a sense of how intelligent they were and what their language was like. Um, and if they uh, understood um, art and emotion in the same way that, you know, I think they would understand it. Um But I, I just, I love that uh, Claire was kind of thinking about, you know, um, the experience of childbirth and how that was probably quite similar um, because, you know, you could argue that that's true for, for so many, you know, like certainly with primates. Um, but the difference is, of course, with primates, we can't communicate with them. Um, whereas with Neanderthals, I mean, it, it would take a pretty brave archaeologist to suggest that Neanderthals didn't have you know, language. Um, and so as long as we could kind of communicate with each other, it would be quite interesting because you'd actually get a result from that. Yeah, I, I guess maybe uh, we only have got about 60 seconds left, Claire, and so maybe this is not fair, but maybe just yeah. say one other thing that I know <laughs> one of the other ways that your your imagination was activated by this question. Um, I, well, I made up some words for Neanderthals. I became, when I read the research, I became so convinced they could speak. Um, one thing I thought living outdoors was that warmth would be essential. And there's one thing to get warmth from a fire. You can warm yourself up. It's another thing to have body warmth and people curled around you. And that's, you know, that's the treatment for hypothermia. That's how you really get deeply warm. So at the center of their culture in my mind um, was warmth and family. And they had a word for that. Or maybe a bunch of words for it. I mean, there's that whole 
false idea Absolutely. that the, the Inuits have 32 different words for snow or something like that. Maybe the Neanderthals had a lot of yeah. different words for trying to get warm. Uh, well, we've been talking to Claire, to Claire Cameron. Uh, her, uh, she's the author of The Last Neanderthal, among other books. Uh, Ella Al-Shamahi, uh, her latest book is The Handshake, A Gripping History. We recommend that book. We recommend her terrific uh, BBC PBS series, Neanderthals. Meet your ancestors. So hug a Neanderthal today or just somebody with – no, don't do that. You get in a lot of trouble. You get canceled. But, um, but, but try to like, think a little bit more charitably about, about my people, my people. You took our land. I'm not bitter. 